we count it a great blessing to be able to look into the Word of God another time. Thankful for another opportunity to be able to study the Word. And I realize we say that every time, but certainly it's the truth. If we have been allowed another time to do anything, it's because the Lord's had mercy and showed us and gave us and provided us with that opportunity. And we are certainly thankful to Him for all that He's done for us and for the ability and the means to be able to do this and uh, for each one of you that listen. So we've been looking at the feast of the Passover in this study of these feasts and the Passover being the first. And last time we uh, looked Exodus chapter 12. This is the very first Passover when the children of Israel were down in Egypt, captive under Pharaoh, and God for the last plague was going to send the destroying angel through, and the firstborn of every house was going to perish. God gave instruction to Moses, to the children of Israel, and to all that would hear, that they could follow the instructions of the word of God by faith, and be delivered from the judgment and death of the firstborn. And that was the first Passover. So we got down through about verse 5, uh, just looking at the instruction and the, uh, I, I, I don't know, the, the direction that God gave for the Passover, I guess would be the best word, and how that it is types and shadows everywhere you look of the completed work in Christ Jesus our Lord for our redemption and uh, finished up in verse 5 the lamb shall be without blemish so in verse 6 we'll pick up and ye shall keep it up this is speaking of the lamb and remember they set aside that Passover lamb on the tenth day from the flock and it was set aside and devoted to die that the blood might save the family, the household, from this judgment. And remember Christ Jesus, as we looked in the book of Mark, chapter 11 and chapter 14, Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem was made on the tenth day of the month, the same month. So Jesus was set aside at the triumphal entry for the purpose of giving his life that all of the church, all of the called out, could be saved. So in verse 6, Ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now we spoke briefly last time about the way they kept time in these days. <clears throat> if you read in Genesis chapter 1, you read the evening and the morning were the first day. And you know, if, if we were saying that, we would probably say, in the way that we keep time, the morning and the evening were the first day. But it's backwards. And that's because in this day, and again, we're talking uh, 4,500 years ago, thereabout, 3,500 years ago, that they kept time from the uh, 6 o'clock p.m. to 6 o'clock p.m. was the 24 hours in a day. Um, we keep time from midnight to midnight. So instead of the date changing at midnight, well, in this day, the date changed at 6 p.m. And I said last time, that sounds very confusing. Uh, just because that is 
uh, totally different than what we're used to from birth, really. But if you apply your mind just a little, you can get your head around it and you can see exactly what's going on here. So, on the 14th day in the evening, they were to kill this Passover lamb. So, this was the day of preparation. They ate it in the night of the 14th, as we would say. But it was in the beginnings of the 15th day of the month and the end of the 14th day that this lamb was to be eaten. And so... Uh, the 15th day, as, as we're going to see, the day after the killing of the Passover, that was going to be a holy day. He says, this is Exodus 12, verse 16, a holy convocation. And in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. So God gives direction here that the 15th day of the month, that is the day after the killing of the Passover, that was to be a type of Sabbath. Now, I don't know how you always thought. I guess I always thought that the 14th day of the month was always on a Saturday. Um, but that's not the case. We'll see that as we look just a little farther into some scriptures. In Mark chapter 15, now here he's talking about the day that Jesus was on the cross, <clears throat> and here is Joseph of Arimathea, who's come to ask the body of Jesus that he might bury it. So this is what it says, Mark 15, verse 42. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. Another time in John chapter 19, we see this same language. John chapter 19, verse 13 when Pilate heard that saying, he brought Jesus down and sat him down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold, your king. So here is the day of preparation of the Passover. So what this is, and we're going to get ahead of ourselves some, but there's no way to get around it. On the evening of the 14th, they killed this lamb. So we're going to say from 3 p.m. onward, they were killing these lambs and preparing them to, uh, to be roasted and eaten and the blood to be applied to the lintel and the doorposts of the door. That was the day of preparation. And so in Mark, he says it was the preparation day, the next day being the Sabbath. That does not necessarily mean that the next day was Saturday. As And, and I realize this. This goes against tradition. Really, 
in every realm of life. But by the Scripture, we don't have anything in the Scripture that says Jesus was crucified on a Friday. It does not say that. But this language in Mark, the next day was the Sabbath, that's where that, that idea has come from, that the next day had to be a Saturday. But as you see, the day after the Passover was killed was a holy day, a high day. And you can read that in John because it was a high day, and maybe we should turn and find that. What he could be talking about there in Mark, the next day being the Sabbath, was not a Saturday, but he could be talking about the day after the Passover. So it, this is John chapter 19, verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, the 14th of the month, that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day. So what he could be talking about there is that day after the Passover being the high Sabbath, the holy convocation, and it could have been that Jesus was crucified on a Thursday, placed in the grave. He laid in the grave Wednesday, or I mean Friday, Saturday, and raised again on the third day, which would be Sunday. I think a lot of opponents of Scripture would say, well, how was Jesus three days and three nights in the ground when he was planted there Friday evening and resurrected Sunday morning? And you can make that work by the way they keep time as well. But the possibilities there that we're talking one day back, that the Sabbath day that they're talking about in John and Mark, this high day, this holy day, that Sabbath could have been the day after the Passover. And so Jesus would have been brought down from the cross Thursday evening. Friday being the high day, the women couldn't go. The next day being a Saturday, also a Sabbath day, the women couldn't go to the grave. But very early in the morning, the first day of the week, Sunday morning, they go, and that would have been the third day. And Jesus has resurrected. So that's uh, very possible. <clears throat> so remembering the way they're keeping time now, on the 14th day, they kill this lamb in the evening. So the 14th day, probably between 3 and 6 o'clock, they are killing these lambs for the Passover sacrifice. Well, Jesus was on the cross, and according to the Bible, he gave up the ghost around the ninth hour. So the ninth hour... And maybe that's confusing. You had the first watch, second watch, third watch, and fourth watch of the night. You had the third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, and twelfth hour that you see of the day. And really, that is just breaking that twelve-hour span down into segments. So when you read the ninth hour, that's the ninth hour of the day. That is nine hours from six o'clock in the morning. And so 6 to 12, that's 6 hours. 
one, two, three, makes it three o'clock. So the ninth hour, when Jesus gave up the ghost, that was three o'clock in the evening on the 14th of the month. So Jesus was bowing his head and giving up the ghost in death at the very same hour that the priests began to kill the Passover. And so Jesus, not, not only in types and shadows, but in the exact time frame, Jesus perfectly meets the requirements of the Passover, both in times, they're setting aside the lamb on the tenth day. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the tenth day. They kill the Passover in the evening of the fourteenth. Jesus is killed in the evening on the fourteenth. And they're in a rush now, remember. We know it was on the fourteenth because the Jews were concerned about the bodies being on the cross for this high day. They did not want bodies remaining on the cross because of the holy day that was going to begin at 6 p.m. And so Jesus was taken down from the cross <coughs> and buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb before 6 o'clock <coughs> in the evening. So we know that he died right at the same time that the priests were at the temple grounds, that people at their homes were killing these Passover lambs to keep this religious uh, feast. So he says this. This is Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So from 12 o'clock p.m., as we would keep, till 3 o'clock p.m., there was darkness over all the earth. The sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was rent in the midst, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So Jesus, giving up the ghost, at the ninth hour, at 3 o'clock, the same time that they are killing Jesus. So all things coincide here. It's amazing how everything from the Passover to Jesus' work line up. Now this was, without question, the predeterminate, foreordained counsel of God that this is the way that Jesus was going to die. And so, God could, 1,500 years before Jesus died, tell us exactly the times, the days, and even the hours that all of these things were going to happen. And God did that very thing in the picture of the Passover. He told us the day Jesus would ride in, he told us the day, and you know, you think, well, Jesus could have organized it to match that. Well, a lot of it didn't rely on him in the flesh. There were things that occurred that he could not have control over. 
as to when Judas was going to betray him. He could have betrayed him at any time. It could have been the day before. could have been the day after. That was out of Jesus' control. And how the priests were going to handle him. They, they got him. They gave him a mock trial at night. They delivered him to Pilate the next morning. That could have been a two or three day process. He didn't know. That was out of his control. So this was ordained by God. It wasn't some man trying to meet up. That would have never worked. It could have never happened. But God brought this to pass without question. And he told us about it 1,500 years before it ever happened. And so you think about the blood sacrifice of the Passover. There was blood to escape the judgment of God in Egypt as well as to escape Pharaoh and the bondage of Egypt. So two things happening there. They're escaping the judgment of God and they're coming out from under Pharaoh. They're going to be liberated from Pharaoh's rule. So in Ephesians chapter 1, you think about the work of Christ, and there's more than could ever be said about what Christ has done in his death for our salvation. In Ephesians 1, verse number 6, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted, in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption. That word redemption, it means full ransom. Ransom in full. Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. So, there was one thing that had me and God separated. It was that I was guilty before Him, and that I had broken the law and the prophets, and I was in danger of the judgment and the wrath of God. And you know, I realize it's a picture and a type and a shadow, but it's the same thing in the Passover. The children of Israel were down in Egypt in bondage, and they were in danger of the firstborn in their household dying under the wrath of God. But God provided them a Passover lamb that would die in place of their firstborn. Well, here in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ, here we are in danger of the judgment of God because of our very sin and iniquity and failure and shortcoming, our inability to keep the Word of God, our lack of desire to keep the Word of God. Here we are in trouble, and the Lord Jesus dies to pay our ransom in full. He bears that judgment in our place. And through Him, we have redemption, the ransom in full. He has fully paid what was owed to God for our sins so that we are no longer in danger of the very judgment of God. There's not a sin that can be laid to the charge of the elect of God to them who have been redeemed under the blood of the Lamb. There's no sin to fear. There's no judgment to fear. But God, through the blood of our Passover, Jesus Christ has made us to be, through His power, justified, right, holy, and secure in His sight, all through the Lamb. When that blood was applied to the lintel and the doorposts 
down in Egypt, they did not fear, but they trusted that that blood was sufficient and certainly that blood was sufficient as is Christ Jesus. And in Colossians chapter 2, you talk about ransom in full. Verse number 13. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a shoe of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So Christ Jesus here, you see that work taking away the judgment of God, that ransom in full, the handwriting of ordinances. Now that's the law, the righteousness, the holiness, the pureness of God. And here we are, when you measure us up to the pureness and righteousness of God, we were dead in trespasses and sins and in wickedness and in rebellion with no desire to come and be one with God. We were fine in our own eyes in the condition that we were in. But Jesus' death, there was Jesus' death, and he took the very commandments and uh, the laws that we had broken that had us separated and guilty. He took those and blotted them out, moved them out of the way, nailing them to his cross. So the sin of the world, the sin of the church, the sin of man was laid on the Lord Jesus Christ's back and the sin and the guilt and the law that held men down was nailed to his cross, and today there's ransom in full through Jesus. But there's more. He took those out of the way, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a shoe of them openly. Not only did he conquer and make payment for my sin, but in doing so, he fulfilled the prophecy that was given unto Eve in the garden. He bruised the head of the serpent. He defeated the devil at his own game, conquering him, conquering his power. And all of mankind that had been under his rule and reign, under the very prince and power of the air, they were freed from his judgment, freed from his rule and liberated just as the children of Israel who were all their lifetime subject to the bondage of Pharaoh. They were released from that by the blood of the very Passover lamb. And Jesus, through his work, not only made a way that our sins could be forgiven, but that we could be liberated from the power of Satan whom we had been servant to for our whole lives. So he says this, Colossians chapter 1, who hath delivered us, this is verse 13, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So our Lord Jesus, through his death 
burial, and resurrection, and by faith in the operation of God, man is delivered from sin, his guilt is taken away, but there's more than just that. There is a freeing and a translating being taken place. That's to seize and to remove. He came and removed us from the very power and control of Satan into the kingdom of God. We were no longer under Pharaoh, but he delivered us from his rule, and we were free in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, the thought, that there's no change going on. What do you think is going to change for the children of Israel after this night? They're going to come out of slavery. They're going to come out of bondage. They're going to come out of the country owned by another people. And they're going to head towards the promised land. Now I realize the great, great majority will die in the wilderness. But the children are going to go in. They're going to the promised land. So wouldn't you say that when you compare the morning before the Sabbath with the morning after the Passover, that there was a great change in the way the children of Israel lived? Well, when Christ Jesus delivers one, from the power of darkness and translates them into the kingdom of his dear son, there will be a change in the way they live also. And it's a result of the work of God in Jesus Christ. It's not an additional work. It's not something that needs to be added to the work. It is part of the work. It's all done at the same time, you cannot have blood and escape the judgment of God in Egypt and yet stay in Egypt captive. You cannot have the forgiveness of sins and the blotting out of ordinances and not be translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His dear Son. You can't, you can't do one without the other. It's all one work, the operation of God, through the Spirit. And yet, there's even more than that. So the blood of the Passover placed on the lintel and the doorposts, but that lamb was supposed to be eaten. All of it was to be eaten. And when you think about eating, I, I think in our day and in our country, there's a lot of eating for pleasure. But when you think about eating and taking stuff in, that, that is there to supply my body with strength, with energy, with power, with the ability to do what I'm looking to do. You know, if you're going to do a, a, a lot of manual labor, you need to eat a good breakfast. You need to have something in your body that's going to give you strength through the day as you labor onward. And so... This lamb, they were going to eat it on the night of the 14th, the evening of the 14th, and the beginning of the 15th. Now remember, the day changes at 6 p.m. So somewhere between 4 p.m. and 8 p.m., they're eating this meal here. 
And they're eating that and that lamb that they're eating is what's going to provide their bodies with the strength to get up and move everything they have out of Egypt that night. The call is coming that night for them to get out. So there was blood to escape the judgment and there was food to provide strength for the journey that was ahead. Well, friends, in the New Testament, God doesn't redeem His people and leave them out in the wilderness to to flop around and do the best they can. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now I realize that was a pile of reading, and there is so many wonderful truths hidden in there. But what we're focusing on here, that lamb was eaten for strength for them to go out of Egypt. Well, here the Holy Ghost is placed inside of the believer that they would have the strength to walk and live and move and have their being in Christ Jesus in this life from the day of salvation forward. Now, he's quite plain about it right here. If you have not the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. So, What he's saying is not something special that only a select few of the redeemed have, but this is something that everyone that is Christ Jesus has within them. This is part of the work of redemption. Now, man and religion, and uh, sadly, the majority of churches paint salvation as just the forgiveness of sins, but we've got the forgiveness of sins, the translating out from under the authority of Satan, and we've got the Holy Ghost now dwelling inside to give strength onward that we could live, that we could walk according to the will of God unto His glory from the day of salvation until the day that He completes our salvation in heaven with Him. So that their strength from the time that we partook of Christ Jesus until the time that we die, God give grace to His church and to His people that they might be able to live in a wicked world in a manner that would honor and praise His name. In First John, I believe we can see this quite plainly and explicitly. In 1 John chapter 2, a scripture I've looked at, quoted, no telling how many times. But in verse 19, that's the verse, they went out from us because they were not of us. And so in verse 20, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. So there was some that had departed from the church, 
They had departed from the believers. They did not have the strength nor the ability to continue onward in their walk with Christ and with the church. So they departed. They went somewhere else. They left out. But you, so there's a number that can't leave because they have an unction, that word means an anointing, of the Holy One. The Holy Ghost of God has anointed you and is giving you the strength to journey onward in this life. His grace, Paul had a great affliction, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan buffeting him continually. And yet, God's grace was sufficient for him. We were looking in Philippians. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengtheneth me. It's God that empowers man by the indwelling of the Spirit to walk for Him. And so, all of this results from the work of salvation through faith in the operation of God by the Spirit. So God brings all this to pass and all this is possible because of our sacrifice. Now I wrote this scripture down. I just, I love the way this is worded. In Numbers chapter 9 verse 15. And on the day that the tabernacle was reared up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, namely the tent of the testimony. And at even there was upon the tabernacle, as it were the appearance of fire, until morning. And so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And so it was always. The presence of God was with His people through the day and through the night. Just as Christ our Lord is with us through the day and through the night, His protection his keeping power, His redemption, His salvation, not just the forgiveness of sins, but a change of life and change of walk, uh, blood for us to escape the judgment of God and our guilt in sin. Food to give us strength for our journey from that day forward. And a release from Satan and His power and His deceit, all done at our Passover, through our Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ. One more place, and we're going to stop for the day. Maybe we'll be just a tad shorter than we normally are, but uh, in Mark chapter 2, I, I believe we can see a great picture of this. So this is, and I'm not going to read it all, we'll read portions, but to paraphrase, this is where those men, those four men carrying their friend that was sick of the palsy, they come to the house, the house where Jesus was is full, so they go up to the roof and they let him down before Jesus. In verse 5, this is what Jesus says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. So, forgiving the sins, a wonderful work. And Jesus had the power and the ability 
to forgive this man his sins at this instant at his word. <clears throat> so do I believe that Jesus forgave his sins? Jesus said he did. His sins are forgiven. But you know, there's a problem still. His sins are done away with in heaven. But boy, there's no evidence of that. You can't see that. We're not looking on the books of heaven to see whether sins are forgiven or not. So it's a work, a true work, a work that's done. But how are you going to prove that? Well, Jesus is going to provide proof. So when he says this, the Pharisees and the religious crowd, they say, now hold on a minute. Only God can forgive sins. Just who do you think you are saying that you're forgiving this man's sins? So, Jesus perceives this reasoning within them. And in verse 8, Why reason ye these things in your heart? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed and walk but that you may know the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. So there's a question. Which is easier? To forgive his sins or to heal him of his palsy? Neither one was possible by man's means. You would have to say that both of those must be, would have to be, without question are the work of God. So Jesus said, look, I said that for this reason, that you would know that I have power to forgive sins, but I'm not going to leave him in the shape he's in. I've forgiven his sins, and they're done away with, and he's been forgiven, but you're not able to see that. Well, don't worry, I'm not going to leave him where he's at. And he saith to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed and went forth before them all. So Jesus says, I've told him that I've forgiven his sins, and I said that so that you would know I've got that power. But he's not going to leave him laying in the bed. He's going to forgive his sins, and he's going to free him from his bed, and this man's going to have a walk that everybody can look at and see the evidence of the work of God. So in salvation, our sins being forgiven, and I don't want to I don't want to lower that or make that seem as worthless. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that our name would be written in heaven and our sins would be forgiven. But there's more to the work than that. He not only forgives sins, but he says, Rise, take up your bed and walk. He makes a change in the man as well that they might follow after the very truth of the Word of God. He changes the inward condition and He changes the outward life all as a result of salvation. So that's as far as we'll go. I hope everyone's had a blessed week thus far. We're thankful to be able to do this. I hope putting them studies out on a Wednesday morning is more convenient for everybody. Um, but I hope you have wonderful services tonight if you're listening on a Wednesday. And we ask you to pray for us and uh, we do our best to pray for 
all of you. We we don't know everybody personally, but we're thankful for you. Pray the Lord would bless you in His Word, strengthen you, and establish you in His grace, and that we could all stand in the work of Christ, liberated from Satan, liberated from sin, our guilt and the judgment and wrath of God being done away with us, how that we ought to glorify God in His work if we are indeed saved. Thank you. Pray for us.